Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Well, as I've mentioned in my previous program, Israel is going through an extremely difficult time with people going into the streets just about every day, tens of thousands of people taking issue with the reforms proposed by the new government, particularly returning, particularly pertaining to the Supreme Court. I've spoken about this uh, several times in the last couple of weeks, but the problem still is ongoing, so I have to address it again. Keep in mind, the, uh, the changes proposed by the new law have several facets, but the main facet that's causing all this disturbance is the fact that the uh, new law would change the way members of the court are chosen. At the present time, members of the court are chosen by a committee in which the major members of the committee, the majority, are either sitting members of the court or lawyers who depend on those judges in their own private businesses. And therefore, the decision of those members of the court on the committee about whom, who shall be chosen as a judge are the, is essentially the majority opinion. So they choose people that they like who are pretty much like themselves vis-a-vis their attitude toward the judicial. And that's the thing that the new government is trying to change. It's not trying to change change the uh, structure of the court. It's trying to change primarily how new justices are chosen. That's what this fight is really all about. Now, now those who are opposed to the change with the signs that they bring to the protests make it seem that Israel is no longer Jewish and democratic. This is according to the most radical rhetoric of the far left who are convulsing the country with days of rage demonstrations and near traitorous refusal to carry out the most essential task of national security service. There are people saying they won't go into their reserve duty. People who are heroes, by the way, people who have in the past have done great things for the state of Israel and the military are now saying they won't serve. As a result, thousands of riled up people are blocking highways and airports, threatening not to show up for military service, taking their money out of the country, and encourage others to do so, barricading the homes of government ministers and the offices of conservative think tanks, and brazenly calling upon foreign governments to boycott Israeli officials and investments. By the way, while all this is happening, I noticed uh, Saturday night, 
and one of the newspapers that a lot of these companies took the money out of Israel, I think that's several hundred, and they put it into a bank in California, and the bank failed this week, so they lost their money. So that's just a side uh, item. Now, this they're talking about the irreparable depredations in Israel's democracy. Truth of the matter is, Israel is much hardier than all these working to a frenzy protesters would have us believe. It is simply wrong, wrong, to portray the current moment as a choice between two competing narratives, that of an isolationist national Israeli light and a liberal democratic peace-loving peace-seeking Israeli left, or that of an immoral and illiberal Israeli light and a moral and liberal Israeli left. This is a false dichotomy and an untrue picture of what's happening in Israel. Over-the-top attacks make the political opposition challenge us as crude and intolerant as the character of the government on which they are basing themselves. It is critically important how we approach public policy debates. Like Britain, France, Germany, and the U.S. these days, there's a real and worthy debate in Israel over important public policy matters. There is a continuum of respectable views held by respectable people that simply defy simplistic categorization as democratic or anti-democratic. It's very important, really important, that we acknowledge this and stop accusations that every controversial policy innovation is motivated by hatred or moral insensitivity or authoritarianism. Taking up one side of debate, I would argue that neither hawkish Israeli foreign policies nor conservative Israeli socioeconomic and cultural policies nor right-wing constitutional tinkering automatically make this country less free, less enlightened, less noble, less creative, or less exciting even. Let's say, for example, that the judicial appointments process is altered to deny Supreme Court judges a veto over selection of their successors. The way it works now, the Supreme Court essentially decides Members of the Supreme Court decide who are going to be their successors and who are going to sit with them on the Supreme Court. They have a veto, essentially. They choose their successors. And suppose this stopped. They didn't, they themselves choose their successors. Is that the end of a democratic Israel? Of course not. In no other democratic country in the world, Do judges get to choose their colleagues and successors? In America, members of the Supreme Court are chosen by the president, but they must be approved by the Senate. There are very famous cases of those who were chosen by the president and were not approved by the Senate. So in other words, the executive branch 
and the legislation brands together choose who's going to be on the judicial branch. It doesn't work that way in Israel, and the, the attempt now is to make it work that way. Now, right now, now, I'll give another example. Let's say that the Knesset breaks up the control uh, the Labor Party, Kibbutz controlled food cartels, or that it passes a law overriding the Supreme Court and instead of expelling Israelis from their homes in Judea and Samaria, it mandates compensation to absentee Palestinian proprietors for land on which Israelis have been living for 40 plus years. Is that the end of democratic Israel? Of course not. My point is that opposition to public policy reforms must be debated on their merits without semi-automatic screeching about intolerance, about repression, about dictatorship, about thought police, and the crushing of democratic norms. Every issue must be judged on its own virtues. Now, there are civic challenges faced, real ones, faced by Israeli society. For a decade, for example, the Israeli Democracy Institute has come up every year with something called the Democracy Index, which found a significant drop in public trust in government institutions and politicians, uh, by the way, including the trust in the Supreme Court. That's also dropped. And there's an increasing willingness to marginalize minorities, such as Israeli Arabs, ultra-Orthodox Jews, and settlers, something, of course, which I don't agree with. But perhaps this is because most voters want the country to move in one direction, while the elites, the elites in academia, the media, and the legal establishment have stymied the others with less than democratic tools. That is what's been happening here in Israel. Hopefully, this situation will be resolved soon. Hopefully before Passover, just less than a month away. Hopefully there will be a compromise on a package of political reforms that completely satisfies neither side. That's the way compromises are made. Everybody comes away with something that they want, but not everything they want. But it should go a long way toward a repair of the current judicial distortion and will end, hopefully, the current chapter of increasingly violent protest. Compromise is a necessity, if for no other reason than than the fact that the government must move on to dealing with really urgent matters. We have matters like the budget, we have managing Palestinian terrorism, and the biggie is confronting Iran, which is building up its nuclear capability. The question is, What will remain of Israeli solidarity 
and a sense of community after what's happened over the last couple weeks. There's been a terrible lawlessness of language. There is boycott, recklessness of rebellion, seditiousness of seeking to crash Israel's economy. The uh, prime minister's wife went to uh, have her hair done in a... um, in a hair salon in Tel Aviv, a huge mob gathered outside. She had it protected by, by. Uh, of course, she's always surrounded by uh, protection. But the the idea of people in Tel Aviv surrounding a hair salon because the president's uh, wife was having her hair done is just ridiculous. And the president had the um, the prime minister. I'm sorry, the, I'm talking about the prime minister's wife. And the prime minister himself had to. Uh, he went to Italy last week, and they had trouble with his with his airplane. There were people at the airport demonstrating. It was a whole problem. The uh, remember that in encouraging uh, overwrought protestations and painting the situations in dire colors, the actors in the opposition are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. After all, there are forces always hostile to Israel who are exploiting this situation to damage Israel's diplomatic relations and to undermine Israeli diaspora relations with false accusations of Israel's descent into barbarism. For example, and I mentioned this previously, the uh, Conference of Major Jewish uh, Presidents of Major Jewish Organization met in Jerusalem several weeks ago and refused to invite several of the ministers with whom they disagreed. The the opportunity was there to hear what these ministers had to say and make a decision whether you agreed with them or not. But the very idea of not calling them because you you don't agree with them, that makes no sense whatsoever. It's, it's interesting, by the way, I've said this before and I say it again, when this country came into being, the country was run by socialists. American Jews didn't want to live under socialism. But in those days, American Jews were remembered the Holocaust. A lot of the American Jews were immigrants to the United States. They knew what it was to suffer as Jews, and they were as happy as can be that there is a Jewish state, even if it was a socialist state that they didn't want to live in. But they donate to it, and they do whatever they could for it because they wanted to see a Jewish state. (coughs) Somehow, or not just simply somehow, but over a period of 70 years, a new generation has grown up in America, and they want Israel, as as shown by the presidents of major Jewish organizations, they like Israel to be the, the Israel they like not the Israel that is. The very fact is that a Jewish state doesn't mean that much to them anymore. They want to be a Jewish state in their own vision of what a Jewish state is. Their parents and grandparents were so happy that there was a Jewish state after 2,000 years, they couldn't care if it was owned by socialists or communists. 
that that idea has been lost now, and that really is a dangerous thing. The uh, the we hope that this will pass. The, uh, the uh, by painting the situation in extreme terms, it's just wrong. There are, as I said, there are forces hostile to Israel that will take advantage if there's a weakening of Israel-Diaspora relations with false accusations. There are American Jews, American Jewish organizations, turning to members of Congress and asking them to put pressure on Israel not to make changes. That is absolutely wrong. I'll give you an example, by the way. It was, I saw it in the newspaper the other day, and I think it's a, really a prime example. Tom Friedman writes for the New York Times. He's one of their more famous uh, writers. And they've grabbed the opportunity to declare Israel a lost cause and seem only too happy to jettison their association with Israel and Judaism. Reading between his lines, you can hear Friedman's elation at Israel's assumed moral failure and the relief he feels from the need to any longer support Israel. And unfortunately, I think he he represents a lot of people. So what Friedman did, and a lot of people are doing, including some politicians in Congress, are they're picking up on the radical rhetoric of parts of the Israeli opposition. They're thrilled to insinuate that Israel is no longer a democracy that shares America's values. And that is absolutely wrong. So, between the doomsday discourse about irreparable depredations in Israel's democratic foundations, it's it's not it's not accurate nor it is wise. Israel is not losing its democratic character. What happens is they're pumping poison against Israel and far beyond the issue that they're taking uh, that they don't agree with. This is really a hugely costly mistake. People who think that Israel is no longer democracy for the simple reason they want to pass laws that will limit the strength, the overpowering strength of the self-chosen Supreme Court. I don't know all some of the other details in the uh, proposed changes, but obviously in a normal society, in a democratic society, you sit down, you negotiate, neither side gets all that it wants, but each side gets something that that it wants. That's the nature of democracy. That's the nature of business. For many years, I worked at Israel Aircraft. I was a contract negotiator. You went in with a lot of things you want and a lot of things you wouldn't accept, and you end up getting not all you want, and you accept some of the things you wouldn't accept. That is the nature of negotiation. Indeed. That is the nature of democracy, and a lot of people simply don't seem to realize it. As I said the other day, the only good personal thing I enjoy about the debate 
are the all these demonstrators are going to into the streets, raising and waving Israeli flags. And I have a grandson who imports Israeli flags from uh, China. <laughs> That's where a lot of the Israeli flags are made. And he just ordered a whole bunch of new flags. So as long as they're demonstrating, my grandson is going to make profit, and I'm happy for him. In the end, things will work themselves out, despite the rhetoric. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with uh, Jay Shapiro. One of the side effects of uh, all this disorder that's taking place in Israel is the fact that police are being used in the hundreds to quell the demonstrations to make sure they don't get out of hand, which means when the police are busy with demonstrators, they can't do their other jobs, which include protecting the country from terrorism. Of course, it's not just the job of the police, the army, all the various arms of the defense forces, border patrol, and so forth, but it includes the police. So when the police are busy stopping demonstrators, they're simply not doing their other job, which is protect Israel from terrorism. In the last uh, two months, first two months of 2023, January and February, 14 people were killed by Palestinian terrorist attacks. 10 were murdered in Jerusalem, seven outside a synagogue in um on February 10th, three, including two brothers aged six and eight, a car ramming attack in Jerusalem. A border policeman was killed outside the Shofat refugee camp near Jerusalem. In February 26, two brothers were shot dead while driving through Hawara, which is in the so-called West Bank. And in February 27th, a man was murdered near Jericho. Fourteen people. Now, all kinds of explanations are offered to uh, supposedly justify these attacks. They say vigilante settler violence, deadly IDF incursions into the West Bank, and all kind of responses to these things by the Arabs. The uh, and, they, and, of course, they're opposed to Jewish settlement. The common denominator of all such rationales being that terrorism is a response to the gross injustice of the Israeli occupation of what they consider 
Palestinian territory. Keep in mind, the, the those areas, particularly in the center of the country, were controlled from 1948 to 1907 by the Hashemite King of Jordan and were liberated by the Israeli army in the war in 1967, the Six-Day War, when Israel was threatened by destruction, primarily from Arab armies, including the Hashemite army that was located in those areas. So put it succinctly, it is the hopelessness, the frustration, and the despair of the Palestinians that feeds violent extremism because there is a lack of alternative paths for them to better their situation. They have no political horizon. It was attempted in the early 1990s when agreements were signed with Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian Authority in which they were supposed to create a Palestinian state. It was all a bluff to get Israel to retreat, and they never established a Palestinian state. The uh, It's interesting, uh, just February now, the UN Secretary General Guterres said that, the, and I quote, the deadly cycles of violence, he calls it, he pointed to the importance of restoring a credible political horizon. And what he did was reiterate the United Nations' commitment to end the occupation, and that's what they call it, the occupation, realize a two-state solutions. Only they hoped that Palestinians could see some light at the end of the tunnel. In the early 1990s, they saw we thought they were given a light at the end, to end, at the end of the tunnel to make themselves a state. They didn't do it. We're talking uh, 30 years ago. And they didn't do it. They just, uh, the top echelon of the Palestinian Authority made itself rich and built themselves villas, doing nothing to make a state nor to help the average Arab in the street many of whom come into Israel to make a, a living. The problem is that the United States broadly embraces this narrative that uh, the, the, the Secretary of State Antony Blinken was recently in Ramallah, the capital of the Palestinian Authority, and after talking about the dangers of spiraling violence, he said, and I quote, what we're seeing now from Palestinians is a shrinking horizon of hope, not an expanding one, and that too, we believe, needs to change. All this, unquote, all this, of course, ignores the fact 30 years ago they were offered a state. In January, National Security Advisor American Jack Sullivan visited Israel on the West Bank. The White House released a statement that Sullivan and the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, said that they, and I quote, exchanged views on measures to build trust, enhance security, and foster conditions for a political horizon, unquote. Once again, security and a political horizon 
were, were placed together. On the face of it, the argument is plausible, after all. If the Palestinians believed that their aspirations could be advanced through peaceful means, surely the motivation for violence would be reduced. Now, unfortunately, as I mentioned a moment ago, I touched upon this ostensibly logical proposition has been tested and the results were far from encouraging. And I want to, I'll give the listeners an example. When the Oslo Accords were signed at the White House in 1993, they undoubtedly established a clear political horizon. The breakthrough agreement at that time, 1993, between Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat involved the creation of interim Palestinian self-government with the promise of eventual Palestinian self-determination. That is what the agreement was all about. So, Palestinian rule was initially established in Gaza and Jericho, later expanded to the West Bank, which was divided into three areas, A, B, and C. The Palestinian Authority received full control over Area A, where most Palestinians live. By the end of 1995, the Israeli army had completed its pullout of all the West Bank's major cities except Hebron, where is a small Jewish community but at the edge of Hebron. Despite this, the first months of 19, 1996 witnessed an explosion of murderous Palestinian terrorism. The deadliest of the period's suicide bombings, February 25th in 1996, an attack from bus number 18 near Jerusalem's central bus station murdered 26 Israelis. There was a March 3rd bombing of number 18 in Jerusalem's Jaffa Road, 19 people killed. And the March 4th attack outside Tel Aviv's Dizengab Center that killed 16 people. In response to this carnage in 1996, the elections of 1996 in Israel saw Israeli voters removed from office the leadership of Israel that was associated with the Oslo Agreements. Now, the beginning of the new century produced a similar phenomenon. At the July 2000 Camp David Peace Summit, the Prime Minister of Israel at that time was Ehud Barak, he um, agreed to a Palestinian state on over 90% of the West Bank and all of Gaza, with Jerusalem being redivided and serving as the Palestinian capital as well as the Israeli capital. Yet, these concessions, and this was sponsored under Bill Clinton, the U.S. president, he, he had a hands-on involvement in the talks. It didn't prevent the eruption of the so-called Al-Aqsa Intifada in September 2000, just a few months later. 
40 Israelis were killed before the end of the year, and an additional 25 would die in early 2001, when up until March, when the, the government was sworn in, headed by Ariel Sharon. The ongoing violence notwithstanding, the final months of Barack's premiership in Israel saw intensive peace talks with Israeli and Palestinian negotiators. They met in Washington in December of 2000, 2001, and uh, Clinton presented a set of parameters designed to be the basis for a future agreement. Clinton's proposal called for a Palestinian state on between 94 to 96% of the West Bank and the entire Gaza Strip, with Israel ceding almost 3% of its pre-1967 territory in Israel proper. This is supposed to compensate for annexations and Jerusalem become the capital of two independent states. We're talking less than 25 years ago. People seem to forget this. When Clinton left office in January 2001, 21, 22 years ago, Israel-Palestinian talks moved to Taba, Egypt. There, the, the, the Israeli negotiators offered even greater flexibility and a last-ditch effort to secure an agreement. But for the second time in five years, Israeli voters became contemptuous of these peace talks because of escalating terrorism. Sharon was elected to restore security and the new prime minister refused to continue with negotiations while these daily attacks continued. So there absolutely no political horizon at that moment. Now, surprisingly for some, vindication for Sharon's approach could be found in a Palestinian commitment on September 9th, 1993. As a poor, before this, almost 10 years before, as a precondition for the signing of the Oslo Accords, Arafat, the head of the PLO, sent a letter to Rabin, the Israeli Prime Minister, in which the Palestinian leader pledged, and I quote, that all outstanding issues relating to permanent status will be resolved through negotiation and he renounced terrorism and other acts of violence, September 1993. Now, today, Palestinians claim and they contend that terrorism stems from the absence of a political horizon. Now, they assume perhaps correctly that the world will blame Israel for the failures of the peace process, conveniently forgotten was the Palestinians who said no at Camp David, torpedoed Clinton's parameters, dismissed Ehud Omer's 2008 peace plan, 
and refused to sign up the John Kerry's 2014 framework. Israel's famed Dovish foreign minister, Abba Even, wrote, and, and it was really funny when he said it at the time, it's really not funny, he said, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. That's what Abba Eben said. And, by, and, and what I've said over the last uh, 15 minutes is all true. I'm just uh, um, reading the historical facts. Now, it could be Palestinians may have legitimate grievances, but the lack of a political horizon is supposed to justify terrorism, the, uh, we, he, they should recall the story of the boy who uh, murders his parents only to demand mercy for being an orphan. So, at the time of the post-Oslo Palestinian terror attacks, Israel's, uh, Israelis were told that those trying to kill them were enemies of peace. The uh, now we're being told that terrorists kill because hopes for peace have disappeared. Now, first we're told that those trying to kill us are enemies of peace, and now we're told that uh, the reason they kill us is because hopes for peace have disappeared. This is known in, in the American language as Catch-22. You can't have it both ways. So to sum up what I mentioned at the beginning of the program, it's really sad, dangerous, that the Israeli Defense Forces, particularly the police, are being used to restrain those demonstrators all over the country, hundreds of thousands, who are demonstrating against the proposed changes to particularly the status of the Supreme Court. There's no doubt in my mind, by the way, that uh, most of the people demonstrating don't uh, simply don't know what they're demonstrating about. They don't know the details. And also, it could well be the member, member, many of these people demonstrating are doing it for social reasons. I know myself, that over the many years, not anymore, many years ago, I was involved in a lot of demonstrations. I, uh, I was opposed to the uh, Israel giving up the Gaza area and all kinds of demonstrations. I can't, I don't even know. I didn't keep a diary. I don't know how many demonstrations I attended. They were all peaceful. And interestingly enough, there was a time when we used to go to demonstrations because, you know, Israelis work hard all week. And uh, demonstrations were a chance to meet some of your friends who you never can meet socially from different parts of the country. I remember we had uh, had good friends from the Haifa area, and I met them on a lot of demonstrations. And doing the demonstrations, it was convenient. Let's say if the demonstrations were in Tel Aviv, uh, we left the uh, listener, the, the speakers, and we went to have coffee in a, uh, any nearby uh, coffee shop. The demonstrations were a uh, chance to feel good that you were demonstrating about something that was important to you. At the same time, get together with friends who agreed with you politically and have a cup of coffee. 
I have to assume that those demonstrators now are doing the same thing. The only thing that really bothers me is somebody is paying for these demonstrations. Back in those days, with demonstrators, uh, you know, it was pretty much uh, do-it-yourself demonstrations. And uh, today it's very well organized. Signs are made and transportation is provided and somebody's putting the bill for these demonstrations. So uh, these are the facts on the ground now. And uh, hopefully the compromise will be made and uh, nobody will get exactly what they want. But we will continue to be the a flourishing Jewish country, the first one in almost 2,000 years. It belongs to us, and we really have to take care of it. So it can be all kind of demonstration. The bottom line is we are one people, and we have to make sure that the country is safe. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Israel has some of the best medical care in the world. Medical campuses are often large. Locating and collaborating with medical personnel can be a challenge, especially in critical situations where quick access to patient data, medical history, and expertise is essential. An Israeli firm called Sync Communication is working on a smart 5G network and network-integrated application for the healthcare industry. The system integrates with hospital electronic patient record and hospital command and control systems. The technology includes a collaboration app to enhance communication among medical staff. Features include push-to-talk functionality and uses voice recognition to help ensure a prompt and effective response. Could help healthcare providers and emergency personnel provide better treatment and patient outcomes, especially when time is critical. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. You're back with Jay Shapiro. As I've mentioned previously, and when I say previously, I mean over the past couple of weeks, the uh, subject which is riling up the population here in Israel is the uh, new government, uh, which is uh, attempting by law to change the strength of the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't want to go into the details again. I don't want to bore the listeners. But essentially what has happened is over a period of years, 20 or 25 years, the uh, Supreme Court in Israel has accepted upon itself a, a uh, amount of power which is uh, not uh, commensurate with the power that a Supreme Court has in other democracies. In other countries, there's a, an executive branch, a, a legislative branch, a Supreme Court, judicial branch. In Israel, essentially, the government is formed out of the... Uh, the uh, legislative branch, so the administrative branch is really part of the legislative branch, and, and there is a judicial branch which over the last years, as I said, have uh, accepted upon itself or given itself powers much beyond those of judicial branches and other democracies. The, the new government is attempting to more or less uh, balance the uh, and reduce the strength of the uh, Supreme Court, which it feels is out of balance with the other portions of the government. 
And uh, this has brought people into the streets in the tens of thousands over the uh, last several weeks, like the last couple of months. And there have even been uh, heroes, members of the Israeli Defense Force, who say that they will not serve in the event that uh, the new um, controversial uh, changes are made. And this led up to something which I want to quote to the listeners. A uh, letter, a public letter appeared uh, in the Hebrew and in the other language newspapers here in Israel. It was signed by 36 different senior officers, retired officers from the Israeli Defense Forces. Those who were actually actively serving cannot get involved in politics, but those who have retired can indeed so uh, do so. And as I said, this um, advertisement, or I guess you can call it not an advertisement, rather a plea, was signed by 36 retirees, that's including lieutenant generals, major generals, and uh, that's about the major generals and lieutenant generals, 36 of whom, and I want to give an idea of the crisis we're having now by reading what is in in this unity letter which was published in the newspapers earlier this week it says to the following to our brothers commanders and reserve soldiers we're following the recent events in israel society and the israeli defense forces with great concern the social unrest sweeping the country these past few weeks is alarming, and it is now permeating our most sacred institution, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. As the State of Israel faces increased security threats, those threats and those who seek our destruction, what is happening with our, our within our own ranks is deeply concerning. The IDF is the People's Army. Its values both reflect and shaped the collective ethos of our country. The men and women who serve our country hail from the full spectrum of Israeli society, and the reserve force in particular, as an integral part of the IDF's ability to protect the state of Israel and ensure its existence. The strength of the reserve units come from their spirit of volunteerism, commitment, and sense of responsibility. In both routine and emergency situations, on land, in the air, and at sea, they operate in good faith, nourished by tremendous gratitude from Israeli society and its leaders. But now, dissent and strife are infiltrating the units. We, former lieutenant and major generals from the entire spectrum, of Israeli society and a bipartisan effort call upon everyone to unite. We cannot, we cannot allow politics to tear apart the IDF. We fought for our country for many decades and commanded regular and reserve units. Our serv service 
was never conditioned on political platforms. We see regular and reserve military service as a basic obligation of all Israeli citizens. We must all continue to volunteer for the reserves for the defense of the Jewish and democratic state of Israel. We must collectively seek to safeguard and strengthen the IDF and transcend all politics in our shared duty to protect the state of Israel and its citizens. We are aware that the recent events and changes taking place in government and society have provoked a rigorous debate and discord, but at the same time, we strongly disapprove of any non-compliance of the reservists. We, th- we further call for the respect of all reservists, and we encourage a spirit of brotherhood, brotherhood so that we can maintain the great integrity of the IDF. And, and that's it. That's, as I said, that was put in all the newspapers, you know, in many of the language, different language newspapers, it's a plea for, to overcome the political dissension which is taking place now. I don't know who wrote it. It's extremely, I think, well-worded well and right to the point. We cannot allow a temporary problem to harm the defensive country. We are at a time now where Iran is moving toward becoming a nuclear power. Iran is, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, with the the Saudi Arabians, uh, our Saudi Arabia is in the process under the guidance, apparently, of China of making some deals with Iran. So it's a very difficult situation. It's important that we have unity. It was the lack of unity 2,000 years ago that brought about the destruction of the Second Temple. And we must learn from our history. And this, this here is a sincere attempt by men who have served in the Israel Defense Forces a sincere attempt and call for unity, and that's why I uh, took the trouble to uh, read the whole thing because I think it's extremely well worded, and it goes right to the point. It's interesting, by the way, in the latest headlines and opinion pieces, there have been numerous discussions about the Air Force and intelligence reservists who are refusing to serve if this judicial reform goes ahead. This decision has caught a lot of concern that Israel's defense capabilities will be compromised. And of course, the defense minister and the head of the chief of staff, the chief of staff of the army are very concerned. Now, the media and the public have been alternatively sympathetic and outraged condemning this as an act of insubordination for political motivation. The, 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 why have these reservists taken this stand? Now, some people have tried to find a reason for this. The, uh, and it's a very interesting aspect. According to someone named Kylie Eisman Lipschitz, who's a lawyer, uh, he wrote an article which said the following, which I found very enlightening. 
The real reason reservists are striking is this. Israeli fighter pilots are very vulnerable to prosecution for war crimes under international criminal law. One of the main obstacles to such a prosecution being mounted in the International Criminal Courts, the ICC, is that Israel has a widely respected Supreme Court that prosecutes breaches of human rights and oversees the internal workings and decision-making of the Army and Air Force regarding the treatment of combatants and non-combatants, which means that the ICC has been blocked from intervening with what happens in Israel until now. Now, there are those who feel that uh, the proposed legal changes jeopardize this legal defense and it would fall into the hands and be a gift to Israel's enemies. Interestingly enough, there has been very little noise from the European Union and Palestinian legal teams about the judicial reforms. This is because they desperately hope it will go ahead. They're literally rubbing their hands with glee at this moment. It's exactly the final piece that the prosecution needs in order to make the case against Israel in the ICC. Now, according to this person, and I don't agree, but I think the other side should be heard. According to this person, uh, which represents a school of thought, if our government passes this law, compromising the Supreme Court's ability to protect human rights, expect that senior Israeli soldiers, Air Force pilots, special commando and intelligence officers will be the first to come under legal attack. And they know this. Now imagine, according to this person, you have given your life to protect the country and then worrying that you could be arrested on your next trip overseas for whatever reason or fearing going on holiday with your family. Uh, the, the, uh, the, this is a concern, and uh, <coughs> regardless of their political views, this could be a problem. The, uh, so the, I can, this is one of the arguments against the change. I personally think that they are exaggerating the amount of change. As I understand the change, change being proposed by the uh, government is to reduce the uh, excessive power that the Supreme Court has, a power that doesn't exist in any other Western democracies. So if the listeners are watching from afar, that that essentially is what the big issue now that has caused tens of thousands of people to come into the streets, whether or not we can reduce the excessive power that the Supreme Court at system has taken over the last 25 years. That's what it really is all about. And uh, I, one can understand both sides. Uh, I personally uh, think that the 
They have excessive power, and it has to be reduced, but it has to be done in a gradual way. I'm not quite familiar with all the details of the proposed law, but it could well be that if they sit down, come to some kind of a compromise, then both sides will leave the table not fully satisfied, but we will continue to reign to be a democracy in the proper sense of the word. Right at the moment, as I said, and I've said so over the last weeks, Israel is a very Israel is very divided, and all kind of furious demonstrations. The uh, it's interesting that while this is happening, us. The Palestinian Arab terrorists have reminded us that at the end of the day, what Israelis what Israelis have really in common is more important than any disagreements over this or that policy proposal. For example, last week a Palestinian Arab terrorist walked up to a cafe in Tel Aviv and started shooting. He wasn't shooting at soldiers or what they call settlers. He was trying to massacre unarmed Israeli civilians sitting at an upscale cafe in the heart of secular, politically left-wing Tel Aviv. Which is interesting, by the way. I have a grandson I was having dinner with that Thursday evening when the attack took place in Tel Aviv. We're having, my wife and I were having dinner with my grandson and his wife in a restaurant in uh, Jerusalem when he got a call from one of his uh, fellows that he serves in the army with telling him that another one of their comrades with whom they serve in the army had just shot a Palestinian terrorist. So my point here is, this is very, very personal here in Israel. And we, because the things are so personal, we have to learn how to compromise on politics. Because in the basic existence of the state is uh, is is the is the bottom line here. The it's interesting if if the would be murderer in Tel Aviv uh, he had gotten away with a lot of Israelis would have been killed. So and it's interesting how the terrorists don't separate between orthodox and conservative and modern and religious and irreligious. They consider for a moment how vastly different segments of Israeli society are: what they wear, what they eat, how many children they have, the books they read, the movies they watch or don't watch. When they go on vacation, what they do on Shabbat, by these measures, secular Israeli Jews and Orthodox Israeli Jews are as different as night and day. But Palestinian Arab terrorists couldn't care less about those differences. 
Like other violent enemies of the Jewish people throughout history, they never tried to kill only a certain type of Jew. They don't care if an Israeli Jew is religious or less religious. They don't care if he or she lives in Tel Aviv or in a hilltop outpost in Samaria. The, the the weapons they use are aimed at all Jews. That is why, and this is very important, despite all the overheated social and political controversies that consume the country these days, Israelis remain remarkably united on the most important issue of all, which is life and death. On the need to take strong action against Palestinian terrorism, there's a wall-to-wall, right-to-left consensus. On this crucial topic, there is a degree of unity that is difficult to find in any other country, including, by the way, the United States. The the uh, consider, for example, how members of the Knesset voted on a recent legislation authorizing the deportation of convicted terrorists who are receiving financial subsidies from the Palestinian Authority. The New York Times described the bill as harsh, hardline, and a product of far-right government. In fact, the new legislation represents a centrist, not the right-wing position, is okay, because this thing about the, the bill about deporting convicted terrorists passed by a margin of 94 to 10 out of 120 seat Knesset. The supporters included the major left or center opposition parties. The uh, the, the, this the uh, about preventing terrorism. We all agree, left and right. The uh, it's interesting if you consider, for example, the widespread public support for the Israeli army's operation break the waves some time ago. The strategy of sending its security forces into Palestinian Authority-governed cities in hot pursuit of terrorists. After the wave of Palestinian Arab shootings, bombings, and stabbings that left 19 Israelis dead in early 2022, the left-of-center government launched an operation, and it was continued after that government fell. The, the left and the right wing supported it because chasing terrorists has never been a right wing or left wing position. Incidentally, an Israeli military spokesman said recently that in the first eight months of Operation Break the Weave from Wave, from March to November 2022, security forces thwarted 500 terrorist attacks. They captured at least 250 weapons and $780,000 in cash that was used to finance terrorist attacks, and more than 2,500 terrorists were arrested. The... Uh, the only critics of the army's operations are the champions of the Palestinian cause who are prominent in academia, the media, and extremist advocacy groups. It's distressing to see Israelis arguing, arguing about difference in domestic policy. 
but it is really heartening to remember that when it comes to the issue that counts the most, stamping out terrorism and ensuring the survival of the Jewish state, Israel's national consensus is holding strong. The it really shouldn't take Palestinian Arab terrorist attacks in Tel Aviv to remind us of the ties that really bind us. I'll be back after the break. One minute of Torah. Gold, silver, copper, linens, wood, oil, spices, the donations from the Jews are pouring in in our double Torah portion of Yakel Pekude. For what? For the building of the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary in the desert. Moses gathers the Jewish people and tells them about the two chief artisans of the Mishkan, Bitzalel and Aholiev. He describes these two divinely blessed and chosen men as wise and as masters of varied crafts. Then he adds a seemingly irrelevant detail. They're able to teach. Now, the pair are coming to build, to embroider, to weave, to set stones. Why are we told of their teaching abilities? When we are blessed with a skill or talent, we are obligated to use it to make the world a more holy, godly place. In that sense, we are all architects, meant to build a home for God in this world. Often, even when immersed in the noble task of using our gifts for God, we may be tempted to keep our knowledge or wisdom to ourselves, not revealing our proverbial recipes. Yet, God wants us to share our insights and teach others what we know. Hence, when Moses mentioned how the pair can teach, he was both praising them and teaching us all a lesson for our own life. With your eye on of Torah, this is Chabai Zekavich. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. I came across uh, an interesting uh, item. Uh, it didn't appear on most of the newspapers. Uh, it didn't appear on the radio and television, but I found it in the magazine. Uh, and it said something quite interesting that LGBTQ individuals can now teach at Yeshivot and be members of Orthodox synagogues if they are not sexually active. All of this is according to a senior modern Orthodox Israeli-American rabbi. Now, you know, LGBT, most of this, uh, as far as men are considered, is something that the um, Torah frowns upon. But in recent years, it's become known more that it's a more of a... Uh, Sickness, I don't know if sickness is the right word, it's more of a condition that people may not be able to control. At any, at any rate, this distinction was included in an in-depth paper that addressed issues regarding the attitudes toward LGBTQ individuals within the Orthodox, Orthodox community and it was written by Rabbi Dennis Kenneth Brander. Still, it's being recorded as a historic change in modern orthodoxy attitude towards the LGBTQ community. Now, Rabbi Kenneth Brander serves as president and Rosh Yeshiva of the Or Torah Stone Network in Israel. It's the Yeshiva system that was founded about 35 or 40 years ago. Uh, it's very popular. It was founded by a very popular American rabbi. And it's, it's a really big institution with a lot of branches. 
and Brander himself was one of the most senior modern Orthodox rabbis in the United States before making Aliyah a few years ago. The Torah institutions, by the way, were founded by uh, Rabbi uh, Steve Riskin. Anyhow, uh, Brander explains that the Torah prohibits sexual relations of people to same sex, but he also explained that we must not presume that every man or woman who identifies as gay or lesbian is sexually active or in violation of a biblical prohibition. Now, Rabbi Brander quoted Rabbi Chaim Rappaport, who wrote extensively about homosexuality in the Orthodox community and who was described by the late United Kingdom Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs as a courageous figure who has written on a difficult subject many would rather avoid. That's what Rabbi Sachs said about Rabbi Rappaport. He said that Rappaport reported to me, that's Rabbi Brander said, that his extensive experience counseling gay and lesbian individuals and couples has led him to conclude that to avoid transgressing the biblical prohibition, a large portion of gay Orthodox Jewish men refrain from engaging in sex. It's, uh, uh, he, he touches the issue of the rebuke of many of the Orthodox community towards LGBTQ members. And the rabbi went on to say, and I'm quoting him because it's, that's important. The rabbi said, some will argue that a, strong, that a strong language of rebuke against gay and lesbian people is necessary to avoid uh, rebuke of queer Jews. But these Jews oppose the Torah, and such people must be reprimanded, according to them. However, according to Brander, the responsibility of Jewish educators and leaders is to engage with gay and lesbian Jews to work together to determine how each individual can fill, to fulfill the dictates and spirit of the Torah as fully as he or she can. Now, in his paper, Rabbi Brenda wrote that conversion therapy should be recognized as a non-viable option. Non-viable option. He mentioned senior rabbis in the United States and in Israel who revoked their support for this type of treatment, such as the Rabbinical Council of America, as well as the religious Zionist rabbis, here in Israel, such as Rabbi Yulish Cherlo and Rabbi Eliezer Malamid. Empirical evidence, according to the rabbi, both statistical and anecdotal, has made it abundantly clear that gayness can't be cured and these attempts at treatment simply lead to depression and are life-threatening. Now, another so-called solution that a few religious Zionist rabbis have suggested regarding homosexuality was the marriage of a gay man with a woman who is aware of his sexual orientation. 
He said that if a gay or lesbian person wishes to marry a straight partner, both parties are aware of their different sexual orientations, and a mental health professional and spiritual mentor accompany them throughout their relationship to support them through the challenges they will inevitably face, such as marriage has the potential to provide the couple with happiness and a healthy, stable family life. And he emphasized that no amount of love for one's spouse will change the other's sexual orientation. Brander's opinion is to support this type of decision, but not necessarily to encourage it. And he goes on to suggest a number of concrete steps that synagogues, schools, and communal institutions can adopt for a more inclusive attitude towards LGBTQ Jews. Practically, Brander said that gay men should be included in a minion just as Sabbath of non-observant Jews are welcomed. In addition, according to the rabbi, synagogue membership should be available to gay or lesbian persons or couples. He explained that since halacha cannot sanction same-sex marriages, it's prohibited. He would suggest that synagogues that have gay and lesbian attendees accept them as single members or change the synagogue membership fee structure from family membership to household membership. He also touched topics that have probably never been discussed publicly with a halachic aspect that have a halachic aspect such as circumcision ceremonies and baby naming ceremonies of LGBTQ parents in Orthodox synagogues. He said that synagogues should not hesitate to host a Brit circumcision or baby naming for the child of a same-sex couple, rather than embarrassing and further distancing the couple from the Jewish community and Jewish life, synagogues should embrace this opportunity to make the couple feel welcome. And he added that such religious events can serve as an opportunity to ease tensions, reunify estranged family members who have struggled to respond to the life choices, choices of their loved ones. Now, Brander is very clear on these issues and doesn't leave any room for doubt. But And by the way, this is the reason when I came across this article, I wanted to share it with the listeners because it's a whole new subject and something that we have to face. The rabbi holds the same certainty for the bar mitzvah, bar, bar, bar and bat mitzvah celebration of children of gay and lesbian parents. Becoming a full-fledged member of the covenantal community is in no way contingent on one's sexual orientation and certainly not that of one's parent or parents. A complication that the average Orthodox Jew would never think of until he, he or she had to deal with it is the issue of communal announcements, whether in a newsletter or in public statements in the sanctuary. To publicly announce and thereby celebrate the engagement or marriage of a same-sex couple from the pulpit seems to stand beyond the pale of what should be permissible for communities that follow halakha. 
conversations with pulpit rabbis across North America indicate that these questions are being asked more and more often. He went on to say, as a guiding principle I would offer for consideration, that anything short of celebrating the engagement or wedding of a same-sex couple should be deemed possible and worthy of consideration. And he also dove into the issue of -of end-of-life issues such as burial. A burial society, which is called called in Hebrew a Hever Kadisha, these are a group of people who take the responsibility in the community for burial. It has the responsibility to bury a gay man or lesbian woman with the same expeditious concern for the holiness of the deceased as they would for any man or woman. Furthermore, rabbis should not hesitate to officiate at funerals or shiva houses, even if the departed or any of the mourners is LGBTQ. Now, Brander went on to quote the head of the Har Etzion Yeshiva, Rabbi Yaakov Medan, one of the more well-known rabbis in Israel, very, uh, very respected. Rabbi Medan said that homosexual men who are members of the religious community and not sexually active become can become teachers become teachers and educators in orthodox day schools and yeshivot. That's that's a very big step. Rabbi Medan went on to say, and I quote. I see no justification for precluding them from engaging in any part of religious life, be that reading from the Torah, leading prayer services, or teaching Torah to the community. He added that the fact that recent estimates suggest a little more than 5% of the US U.S. population in general is LGBTQ should cause the approach to be different since these estimates are also true of the student body of yeshivas and Jewish schools. And he added that if a school hires a single gay or lesbian person who fits Rabbi Medan's description as a religious studies teacher, the the school should have a clear policy from the outset regarding the appropriate steps in the event the teacher formalizes a sexual relation with the gay or lesbian partner. So, in the bottom line, in Brander's halakhically based opinion, there is no reason not to accept children of same-sex couples. He suggested that schools need to think through and create the appropriate protocols as they have for other situations to make it easier for children of gay and lesbian parents to fully integrate into their schools. Another issue that Brander points at, based on his many conversations with parents and educators, is that children and lesbi- of gay and lesbian families may not get invited to birthday parties, bar or bat mitzvah events, or Shabbat play dates or sleepovers. And he went on to say meaningful education regarding tolerance and understanding 
along with clear guidelines, can help avoid unintentional hurt feelings or misunderstood expectation, and explain that these policies need to be clearly communicated to school communities. Now, Brander, uh, Rabbi Brander went on to quote from a paper that was written by the now chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, Ephraim Mirvis, that explained to educators in the British Jewish community how to deal with issues, issues of LGBTQ students in Jewish day schools. Schools must also take active steps to, to prevent bullying and discrimination towards students who are either themselves gay or lesbian or have gay or lesbian parents. The uh, And Rabbi Brander quoted quite a bit of Rabbi Mervis's writing uh, on the issue. Brander said he has invested many, many months of work into this paper that he's published and that there has never been this type of halakhic investment on these issues, whether small or large. This is really something quite new. But he also said he acknowledges the fact that some readers of my article, whether themselves uh, straight or not, uh, will argue that I have not gone far enough in calling for systematic changes to modern orthodoxy's way of life. He added immediately that others of a more conservative bent will preemptively reject what I have written as beholden to a progressive agenda and out of the bounds of Torah. Now, all I can say, said Rabbi Brander, who is an Orthodox rabbi with a more than 40-year reputation of a major synagogue in the United States, all I can say is that I have made my best efforts to be honest with the reader and with myself. I, have, I pray that I've walked the proper line to show commitment to all aspects of Jewish law while respecting individuals. So it's interesting, Brander's been dealing with issues of homosexuality in the Orthodox world for years. He knows that his paper may cause controversy. It obviously will uh, cause controversy. controversy. He said... This paper will be a success even if there are dozens of articles against it, and of course, if there are articles supporting it. This dialogue needs to happen. Brander shared that he feels a bit of hypocrisy in the Orthodox community with this regard. He went on to say, and I want to quote this, he said, there are so many Jewish institutions with names of people on them, even though these donors have sat in jail from stealing from someone. That's a, that's a, <coughs> that, by the way, is quite true. So, and the rabbi mentions it. These same institutions that are named after people who have violated the law will think twice about someone who is attracted differently than straight people. It just doesn't make sense. So what the rabbi is saying is this, the LGBTQ 
is something we have to deal with. There are people who are simply in this state of uh, of their uh, their life, and they are part of the Jewish community, and they should be included in the Jewish community. And all those people that uh, at the, the at the end of his article, at the end of the interview with him, he said there's not a lot of people who have uh, got their names on institutions when. And they gave money to institutions, even though the money was earned from uh, nefarious and questionable activities. So they had to think twice before making accusations against the, against the LGBT community. The, the LGBTQ condition exists. These people are Jewish. We have to deal with it. And to the best of my knowledge, uh, what I've quoted in the last 20 minutes, something really new. People have not faced this issue in terms of uh, people's uh, sexual uh, orientation and how they should be received and accepted by the community. I found this article extremely interesting. There will probably be more articles on this subject, but but um, there is never a dull lot, a day in the life of the Jewish community, and I think that this subject uh, really uh, points to this issue. So uh, I wanted to share this with the listeners, something I myself was not uh, aware of, but it's something that is now becoming uh, of importance, or let's put it this way, it's out from under the covers, must be deal with. There are a lot of people who should be accepted into the Jewish community, even though they have other personal problems of one sort or another. Quite honestly, I think uh, LGBT, it's a, a condition which uh, is, first, first, is quite less uh, um, alarming as somebody who's stolen a lot of money and given it to a yeshiva. You have to see all sides of an issue. At any rate, I came across this article. I think it's interesting. It's a novelty, and I wanted to share it with the listeners. Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing off. Thanks for listening. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! 
Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 